we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf, and he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. When I was listening to the songs, again, this service, I, that scripture just really speaks to me because that's a whole nother sermon. And we don't have time for that yet, unless you guys were planning on being here for a while. Okay, good. <laughs> when I was six years old, five years old, 1960, and of course, if you can subtract, you know how old I am. I was going to kindergarten. In order to get to kindergarten, I had to walk down Market Street. We lived at 123 West Market Street in Dodge City, Kansas. Yes, that Dodge City. And we had to turn right on Sunnyside Avenue and walk up to Sunnyside Grade School. This is a grade school I barely remember. I just remember going to kindergarten there, but I did see it on, on Google Streets, so I know it's still there this way because I was tracing the path to make sure I was doing the right thing. But in order to get there, you see, I had to walk by Wade Brown's house. Wade Brown had a fenced-in yard, and he had the meanest, viciousest, viciousest, is that a word? He had most vicious, that's the word. He had a mean dog, and, he would, and he would, Wade would taunt me like, my dog's going to eat you up, and the dog would bark and snarl, and it just made the back of your hair or back the hair stand up on the back of your neck and it was scary but as long as I had my brothers I was okay I think we have a picture of the kind of dog it was (laughs) I was five years old I was a lot shorter then but then one day it happened I was in kindergarten and the teacher gave me a note to tell me that my brothers had already gone home I couldn't read it because I was in kindergarten but she read it to me and she said you're gonna have to walk home by yourself I had to walk by Wade Brown's house. I was scared to death. And I remember walking those three or four blocks down to Market Street, and I stood about a house away staring at the house. And I said, how am I going to buy this house? I couldn't cross the road because Mom said you weren't supposed to cross the road. And besides, further on down, there were collies. They were worse than dachshunds. And so I was just stuck there. So I did what any self-respecting five-year-old would do at that point. I stood there and cried till somebody came and got me. <laughs> and I had, it was my older brothers, that, one of my oldest brothers that came and got me. And if you have older siblings, you know that you'll never hear the end of the story. They Twitter and they still bring that up. I'm not on Twitter, so I don't have to see it. <laughs> one of my favorite passages is in, uh, is in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, in this passage, we find... King Nebuchadnezzar had built an image of gold 90 feet high, and he told everyone, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, then you must fall down and worship the image. You can imagine what happened, because there were Jews there that were not going to worship that image. Three Jews by the name of Mishael. Anyway, you know him as... Um, and it's gone now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's why Karen sits right there. Thank you. 
three guys, and they weren't going to bow down and worship it. But they had tattletales in the kingdom, and the tattletales went and said, those three Jews, they're not bound down. They probably said it just like that. Those three Jews, they're not bound down, and we think you should do something about the king. Well, the king is angry, and the showdown is set. So let me set this scene, because if I was filming this movie, this is how it would look, Okay. So the king is sitting here in his chair, because kings always sit in chairs, like this, and he's mad. His face is red. In the background, we have the fiery furnace, the furnace that's really hot. We have this 90-foot statue, and we have the tattletales behind the king's throne going, uh-huh, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. This way. Okay, you got that? That's the picture in your mind. And you hear the flames of the fiery furnace in the background. The flame is going... You can make that sound with me. As we hear the flames sounding, and then, and then the king brings in our heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're sitting there, just like this. They walk in, cool, calm, collected, probably like this, maybe because they already have their arms bound. But they were walking in, cool, calm, collected. The king gives them one more chance. He says in a kingly voice, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods nor worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Which always struck me as a kind of an interesting way to translate that. Because it's like if you fall down and worship then, well, cool, then no big deal anymore. But if you don't, But if you don't, then I'm going to throw you. If you do not worship it, then you will be thrown immediately into a blazing fire. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And then the music would stop. There would be this pause. And the three heroes are standing over here. They're not sweating, by the way. Everybody else is. Fiery furnace. You know, it's got to be hot. This is the Middle East. They're burning sweat pouring off their head. They're not even sweating. They're standing here like this, looking cool calm and collected. The music would die down. The flames would die down a little bit because we want to hear what they have to say. And they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Doesn't that just bring chills to you? What a great act of courage, being able to stand up before the king of Israel, or the king of Israel, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man who could throw him into this fiery furnace, a horrible death, and say, not going to do it, because this is the way, this is my principles, and I'm not going to do it. But you know, if you read that in the Bible, you might kind of expect that because they're not going to put cowardly stories in the Bible. Well, actually, they do, so you just read your Bible. But you kind of expect those biblical characters to be made of sterner stuff than we are, cut from a different cloth. Well, of course they could do that. I could never do that kind of, have that kind of courage. But they could because they're in the Bible, and they're different than you and I are but they're not. And sometimes I think we cut out this vignette of this is the most wonderful display of courage that I've ever seen in my life, and we forget how they got there. 
And so this morning I want to take a look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11-14, because I think this passage provides us insight in how we can develop the kind of courage that we see arrayed in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let me read that. Hebrews chapter 5. Okay, so a side note here, just so you're paying attention. The writer to the Hebrews... We, it doesn't explicitly say who the writer to the Hebrew is. There's a big school that says that it was Paul, and there's a smaller school that said it was Apollos, and there's a bunch of different ideas about who is the author of the passage. It's still canon, it's still the Bible, but we don't know who wrote it. So I might say during this sermon, Paul, when I really mean writer to the Hebrews. So if I say Paul, just substitute in your brain writer to the Hebrews, and then you can make a little tick mark. And last service, I did it three times. So we'll see if I'm paying attention this morning. All right? Got that? Got it? Okay. Are you awake? All right. All right. So, so the writer to the Hebrews, I did it right, said that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered a prayer and a mission. So before this passage, he's talking about, he's about to get into this deep, spiritual truth that he wants the writers or he wants the people of Hebrews to know about. But he says this in verse 11, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Wouldn't that make you feel great? Oh, the preacher's going to preach. And he just, did he just call us stupid? I don't get that. We are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So this morning, I want to kind of break down this passage and see what, uh, see what things are. I want to look at what the problem is, and I want to look at how that, what, why that problem is important. And then I want to talk about um, what we can do to address that kind of problem if we see it in our lives. So if you're missing Randy this morning, this is a what, so what, now what. Got it? What, so what, now what. So why don't I talk about the What? The one thing I want to talk about in this passage are what is milk and what is meat and what are the differences between the two. And then I want to talk about um, how, how we can develop meat in our lives. And then I want to talk about just briefly uh, what we can do when we discover that we have that. See, these people had, time had passed. They'd been Christians for a while, but for some reason they weren't advancing in their faith. They may have just been going through the motions. They may have allowed their Christianity to morph into kind of a, uh, it looks like it looks like they're Christians, but underneath it all, I'm not really sure that they are. And, and so the writer to the Hebrews, I almost said Paul, but I stopped myself. He said the writer to the Hebrews said that, uh, and though, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teachers. And that word ought is an accounting term, and it means that they owe to be teachers. Now, we can get into this. Um, I don't want to say that God is in a quid pro quo relationship, but out of our salvation, we spring, uh, springs our ministry. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us here this morning, that though by this time you ought to be teachers because we've invested time and we've invested um, 
people's lives in you, and we want, and we want to know if, why we're not seeing any kind of fruit in that. And he says, in fact, they had fallen apart so much that they need someone to teach them the elementary two truths of the Word of God. And the word elementary truths, that is, is, this is your Greek word for the day, stoicheia. Can you say that with me? Stoicheia. So that Greek word just means ABCs in this context. It just means simply ABCs. So he's saying that we need to send you back to kindergarten so that you can learn the basic truths of the oracles of God to lay again that foundation that is going on. So now I want to know what these elementary principles, what milk Paul is, talk, Paul is talking about here, or the writer to the Hebrews. That's one. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says this in verses 1 through 3, because he tells us what milk is. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Now, I'll talk about those in a minute, but let's, think, let's camp on this for a minute. So the elementary truths that, that the writer of the Hebrews is talking about here is our, our foundational elements of Christianity on which something else is going to be built because you don't build a foundation for no reason. You don't build a foundation and then go away and say, well, that's done. I don't need to worry about that anymore. But you build a foundation for a reason. So he says that these elementary truths of God's word, these milk things are a foundation. What are those foundations? They are uh, repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. So they're couplets. There's two things times three couplets. So there's six things altogether. So they're from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And he says, and God permitting, we will do so. So what is this repentance from dead works and faith towards God? It's pretty obvious that, that a foundational truth of Christianity is that I can't save myself. It means that, that uh, I, ha- I have come to a realization that my work will never get me right with God. And so he says we repent from those dead works and we have faith in God that he can make me right. The secondly, he talks about the instructions about washings and laying on hands. And though uh, this could refer to baptism, immersion baptism, it could also, uh, it could probably has a basis in what Hebrew Christians would be familiar with, that uh, ritual washings and cleansings to keep themselves pure. Uh, similar to what James says in chapter 2 that says that um, um, uh, pure and undefiled religion is this, to keep oneself unspotted, or to visit the widows and the orphans and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. So to keep yourself clean. So he says instructions about washings and laying on hands. Laying on hands would probably have to do with commissioning leaders or uh, giving people at, at that time in the early church the gift of the Holy Spirit like, or being able to see the gifts of the Holy Spirit in people. And finally, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And obviously, that means that this isn't it. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 14 through 16, the writer says, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So this is just a halfway house. So these foundational truths are milk, but they're foundational in that there is something more that needs to be uh, that needs to be layered on top of that. 
Now what is that? That's what Paul talks about here. That's two, right? Uh, Paul talks about here as meat. He says that this meat is is an infant, but solid food or meat is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So you want to ask yourself, what is meat in this particular passage? Or what is the difference between milk and meat? And if you flip over to uh, Ephesians, or Hebrews chapter 6, um, you, don't, you might need to flip, but I apparently don't. On the bottom of my page here, it says this, that even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. So we can see that the clue here is that meat or solid food in this, in this passage are the works that the people, the ministry, let's say it that way, the ministry that is outgrowing, uh, that is the outgrowth of the faith, the foundation they have put down. So the ministry that they are doing, they're building the house, and they have a solid foundation based on the truths of God, and they are building in their ministry a house that, will, that is pleasing to God. And we can see in these kinds of actions that you've helped his people and continue to help them. And we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, each of you. So only some of them were doing it, not all of them, but he says we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now the, now the result of adding solid food to your diet, building on the foundation, are two things according to this passage. There are, the second thing, I want to talk about the second thing first is, in verse 12 he says, we do not want you to become lazy. And the word there, lazy, is the same word that he used up here in verse 11, slow to learn. So there's a connection between building on the foundation and that foundation helps us not to become lazy in our faith or not to become forgetful of the foundation that we have laid. And so he begins to, and begins to say that. But the second thing, which I think is cooler, is that it helps us to show the same diligence to the end in order to make your hope sure. In order to make your hope sure. Now, how does building on a ministry platform, how, uh, the platform of my faith, how does building on that ministry acts make my hope sure? Let me give you an illustration. You said, great, because that would be really helpful now, right? So the, when I was helping, Gary Schrock had organized us during, was it just last fall? We did the, the uh, churches left the building. That was just last fall. Seems like longer than that. But anyway, um, I guess it's been a year. But anyway, so we went to go build, uh, to put a roof on a house. A roof had, just for you uh, uh, people who are familiar with it, had an 812 pitch. It was something like that. And, and we had to tear off the old roof and get on the new roof. And so I was trying really hard to stay off the roof because I am very respectful of heights. <laughs> I just, they're not my favorite thing in the world. My house, which I roofed one time, had, uh, has a 12-12 pitch. And so after some guys that were helping me, um, a couple of firemen were helping me, John, 
um, one of the tow boards we were using, they didn't put enough nails in it, and, the, and I dropped a bundle of shingles, and the tow board fell. So after that, nobody got hurt. It was all fine, but I was very respectful of being up high, because you can get hurt if you're not careful. So Gary tells, gives me a roofing shovel, and he says, go up there and start stripping shingles. I'm like, up like on the roof there you're talking? <laughs> and so he had tow boards there, which he told me today are five and a half inches wide, five and a half inches. And I have a size 14 foot. <laughs> it doesn't fit on that five. So I remember getting up on the roof and then going from the side roof over onto the main roof and putting my foot on that board. And I took the first step, you know, and you kind of bounce. You got your weight on the back, so I could retreat at any moment. But the board seemed pretty solid. And so I put another foot on the board and, and I said, okay, maybe this is okay. And then Gary gives me a ladder, a piece of a ladder, so, we could, so I could go up higher <laughs> on this tow board. And he was, of course, trying to shame me into going up there. So I went up there, and because uh, I could do this. I'm a big, strong guy. Well, after 30 minutes, I had forgotten that I'm on a five-and-a-half-inch board on a ladder leaning against the roof. And I'm stripping shingles. I hate those staples that are in shingles, they're really hard to get off. And I was working on those, trying to pull them off, and they were just awful. But I completely forgot I was 30 feet off the ground because I had taken the step, and I trusted that step. Okay, that step held me, and the next step held me. And then by the time I crawled up the ladder, I had forgotten all about that because my hope was made sure by my experience there will hold me and it did there are aspects of our christian faith that can only be experienced in the performance of ministry in reaching out getting out on that tow board and saying i don't know god if you really want me to do this kind of ministry i don't know if i want to hang around those kind of people i don't know if you really want me to go to salt and light this weekend i don't really know if you want me to go to to rum and help paint i don't i don't know if you want me to do any of those kind of i don't even know if you want me to go on a mission trip that's pretty scary you get there's not food and you don't know what you're gonna drink and it's way outside of my comfort zone why would god says why don't you just try it why don't you just take one step and see how we'll support you. In 5.14 he says, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Two things are important in this verse. The first one is constant use have trained, or by constant use. The word carries with it the sense of habit. This, uh, the word, uh, just the habit that over and over and over again, when you're out there performing ministry for God and he comes through for you and supports you, maybe not in the way that you think he ought to, but you made it, you think this, that he has trained me over and over and over again so that I, or he's, he has used me over and over again so that I know that when I step out there, that he's going to support me. The word train is used of athletes to seriously train. It was actually used, the word is used of Greek athletes preparing for the game. And it means to train naked, which I hesitated to use this morning. But, but it basically, they were trying to strip off all encumbrances so they could focus on 
what they were supposed to be doing, training for the games. The result is, the result is that your perceptions have, tra- have been trained to discern good from evil. The more you work in the ministry of God, the more you see God at work, and the more you see God at work, the more you're able to recognize that when you see it again. And the more you see it again, the more you're comfortable with that. Oh, I can see what's going on here. God's working. I'm going to join in with that. Now, how do I live that out? You know, because this is the well-duh part of the sermon. You know, the, well, duh, Tim, I know that. I know I should be out ministering to people. But there might be something stopping me. And that inaction that we have, I was trying to analyze this, what's underneath the inaction that I have? Because I like laying the foundation that's easy. It only has to do with me. But when I have to get out uh, doing ministry, it's kind of messy at times. It's not always clean. It's not always comfortable. But underneath that inaction is the doubt that everything's going to be okay, that I'm going to live through this experience, or that it's not going to be the most horrible thing in my life. Sometimes it is, and sometimes you learn from that. But underneath that doubt is fear. I don't know. I'm kind of afraid to be in this situation. But ultimately, underneath all those emotions is unbelief. I don't believe because I've never seen God come through for me. But I've never seen God come through for me because I haven't really ever stepped out. But you know, Tim Keller says that God is not, um, God is not, never under delivers, under delivers on his promises. He always over delivers. I think Ephesians 3 says that we, that God will do more than we can ask or imagine. And we become too enamored with our own comfort level and we say, you know, this foundation thing, I like this, I'm comfortable here. It can't get any better than this. And C.S. Lewis says this, If, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And you think about it, we're thinking about the cost of stepping out for God, and we're thinking, is it an even trade? If, if what I'm risking here, is this an even trade for what God is going is to give back to me? Well, you don't know until you try it. But I can guarantee you that it is never an even trade that God over-delivers on his promises. Now, how can I get there? Because I can't just walk up to a king and defy him and stand ready to hit a fiery furnace. And you know what? They didn't do that in Daniel either. Let's go back to Daniel 3, or Daniel, and see how they developed that kind of courage. Because it always takes steps. It always takes that first step. Daniel chapter 1. We see Daniel eating, uh, uh, or moved to Babylonia. 
front the moved the king forcibly took them and moved them to Babylonia. And then he says, I want you to eat at my table so you guys are all fattened up and eating the right kinds of foods. And Daniel looks at the table and he says, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that. These go against our, our Jewish laws. And so, and this is the cool passage in Daniel 1, 8 through 16, it says this. It says, because I can't see back there. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had, show, had, had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord and king who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel pulls along Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego along with him. And they, it says later in this passage that all of them ate the, the water and the vegetables. And guess what? It turned out great. They looked better than everybody else, probably because they were eating a healthy diet. And, they, and so God blessed them with all kinds, and these were smart guys anyway, but God blessed them with with all kinds of intelligence. That happened in Daniel 1. So they saw God come through for them. They took that first step out on the tow board and it held them. Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He was upset uh, because nobody else could interpret this dream. Now, you have to understand that Nebuchadnezzar didn't tell anybody his dream, but he wanted them to interpret it for him. Have you ever worked for bosses like that? I'm not going to tell you anything, but if you don't interpret this, I'm going to cut your head off. And so all the magicians and the, all the wise men in the place decided that they would, um, that, that uh, they kept trying to stall him. And so the king finally got mad and he says, I'm going to cut off everybody's head. You're out of here. And so as the soldiers are going from place to place, Daniel meets the soldiers at the door. And he says this. Uh, he meets them and says, hang on, this is not it yet, but he says, hang on, he says, we'll get, the interpret, we'll get the dream and the interpretation if you come back tomorrow. And the soldiers, I don't know why, because of God, said, okay. So Daniel goes back in the house. Can you imagine this conversation? They're all sitting in the house thinking, you know, this isn't going to go well for us. And Daniel comes and says, okay, guys, guess what? He returned to his house, explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning the ministry so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Can you imagine what they went? You said what to the guards? Now we have to come up with this dream and how is God going to do that? But he does. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision. Then Daniel praised God. See, he came through again. Now they're totally out on that tow board. We get to Daniel chapter 3, and they're standing before the king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the amazing thing, if you've um, done the Beth Moore study, is she brings out the fact that they, where was Daniel? He's back at the palace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it gives me chills just to think about that, are facing the king by themselves. You know why? Because God says, hey, it's time. Put the ladder on. Get this shovel out. It's time for you guys to start stripping shingles off here because we're ready to go. And they do. And if you go back and look at that passage later this afternoon, you'll find out that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out 
of the fiery furnace. Remember, the king looks in there and sees them walking around in the fire. Remember, they were bound in the fire, hands and feet, with flammable clothes on. I can't imagine. They were, and then the king looks in there and he sees them walking around. What happened to their bonds? God took them off. They come out of the fire. They didn't smell like smoke. Nothing touched them. And there was also a fourth guy in there. You go read it, find out what's going on with that. They were able to stand because they had put their faith into practice long before that part. And so when God was ready for that act of courage for those three guys, they were ready for God. So this morning, as we're thinking about this, maybe we're thinking about that God has been talking to me about something, and I think he's ready for me to step up. But I'm afraid to do that. One of the amazing things that Daniel does after in Daniel chapter 2, when, um, uh, when he was, uh, after God had given him the dream, uh, Daniel breaks into a song. It says, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. Then Daniel praised God of the heaven and said, and then he breaks out into a song. And it's kind of probably one of those boy things going, Ooh, he did it. God did it just for me. Right now, the band's going to come up and we're going to play a, they're going to play a song for you. I love this song by Remedy Drive called Heartbeat because it helps us understand how to get connected to the heartbeat of God and what happens when we do that. And the f- cool thing about this song, there are three parts, and you have to sing the oh, 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 oh part. You'll find out what those are. Ben will help you through that because he's just like that. But the, the cool thing about this song is, is that the writer is reading, is pleading for God to help him, and secondly, God comes through for him, and thirdly, he breaks out into a song. 